My name is Christoph Benning. Together with Peter McCourt, I co-edited the special issue of the plant journal entitled Arbidopsis, a rich harvest 10 years after the completion of the genome sequence. Articles in this special issue are freely available for download from the plant journal website at www.theplantjournal.com. Peter and I were graduate students of Chris Somerville at the DOE Plant Research Laboratory at Michigan State University. Chris is currently the director of the Energy Biosciences Institute in Berkeley, California. Chris Somerville has been a pioneer in applying Arbidopsis to the study of fundamental biochemical processes in plants. I asked Chris how he became interested in Arbidopsis. Just at the time I was completing my PhD in bacterial genetics in the um, late 70s, my advisor received a gift of EcoR1 from Howard Goodman, and my wife Shauna and I started playing around with cutting lambda DNA. That made us think about what the implications of recombinant DNA to agriculture might be, and, and we recognized it was probably going to become possible to directly manipulate plant genes. At about the same time, Mary Dill Chilton and colleagues had published a paper providing evidence that agrobacterium transferred DNA into plant cells, so we had an idea of how the technology might evolve. Shauna was a graduate student in plant breeding, and her experiences with growing one crop a year and the difficulty of getting growth chamber space for genetic experiments in the off-season had also pushed us to search for a small, rapidly cycling dicot. It led us to the papers of George Redeye, who'd been making the case for Arabidops. And also, a group at the Kew had actually shown, using Fulgen staining, that Arabidopsis had a very small DNA content, so caught our attention as well. George provided us with a mutagenized population so that we could do some sort of pilot experiments, actually while we were still students. And we could see right away that it was easy to isolate mutants affecting a wide variety of processes. We got hooked on the idea that it could be a broadly applicable model. Eventually we got excited by the idea, which is, I retrospect, it seems ambitious, but that if we could get a cadre of people working together on Arabidopsis, uh, we could make more rapid progress in solving basic and applied problems. So, And in the beginning, we thought that it would be good to generate enthusiasm in the, among physiologists and biochemists. Elliot Meyerowitz is the George W. Beadle Professor of Biology at the California Institute of Technology in Pasadena. He is a developmental biologist. I also asked him how he got started in Arabidopsis. Uh, the best I can remember, I first heard about Arabidopsis when I was a graduate student at Yale in the mid-1970s. And a friend of mine named Jim Wong told me about it. He was a graduate student in the lab of Ian Sussex. I didn't do anything about it other than read, though. And uh, as a postdoc at Stanford uh, later in the 1970s, I can recall discussing it with Ron Davis, who was one of the faculty members there, that Ron told me he felt no one would ever be funded to work on it. In fact, years later, his laboratory did some notable experiments with squash and tomato and pea with uh, postdocs like Sakis Theologus and Joe Ecker. In fact, uh, after I left Yale, David Mikey published some lovely papers on mutagenesis in Arabidopsis, so there were people working on it when I was there. After I came to Caltech in 1980, circumstances landed me with a postdoc and a graduate student, Leslie Lutweiler and Bob Pruitt, who both had interests in plants, and we decided we would uh, try working on Arabidopsis and see if we could use it as a model system for molecular biology. 
This was at a time when it was widely thought that DNA from plants was genomic DNA was unclonable, and when the only clone genes from plants were from cDNA clones, because the plant genomes on which people had worked were too large to make complete genomic libraries. And so we uh, got to work. We're rapidly joined by others in the lab, including another postdoc, Patty Pang, and then another graduate student, Karen Chang, and then another graduate student, John Bowman. And Karen cloned the first genes. Bob characterized the genome. Leslie measured the genome size and found it was smaller than a fruit fly. And from there, we're off and running. Among many others, Chris Somerville was involved in getting the Arvidopsis genome sequence started. I asked him to recall how the pieces came together to complete this monumental work. The Arvidopsis genome sequence was really a model of collegiality on a very large scale. I first sort of really started thinking about it in the mid-'80s when Elliot Meyerwitz pointed out that if we could get a high-density genetic map, we could walk to any gene defined by a mutation. And I could see that would really be transformative, so that got me excited. By 1989, we had sort of got to the point where with sequencing technology where people were starting to actually talk about genome sequencing. The germinative phase really began in 89 when Mary Clutter and Dalil Nasser and colleagues at NSF invited a, a small group of us to meet with the director to talk of, about how to facilitate development of the emerging Arabidopsis. They talked about how investment in Arabidopsis in general and genomics could advance plant biology, and the NSF director gave Mary the go-ahead for NSF to invest exceptionally in Arabidopsis. And I also remember really clearly that Jim Watson was very helpful. You know, his stature was an important seal of approval, as was the stature of Ron Davis and Ollie, you know, who was a yeast geneticist, and Ollie Nelson, who was a maize geneticist. And after the meeting, actually, I asked Jim Watson why he made the effort to go all the way to Washington to support us in that meeting. And he, he said his interest was mainly in understanding the human genome and that to interpret the human genome, he'd need insights from many model species and that maybe plants would be useful for certain types of genes. I think it was a really a great, a memorable insight. You know, during the early 90s, when we first sort of got the project started with NSF support, it was mostly about yak and back libraries and mapping and stuff like that. And I, I actually got the first grant to sequence ESTs in uh, in 93. And we tried to kind of set a standard for openness because we, we would take our raw sequences we were producing at Michigan State and send them directly to, uh, right off the sequinator to a group at University of Minnesota, and they would uh, clip off the vector sequences and annotate them and put them on a website. And so we got to see the genes on, on a website at the same time everybody else did. And we, we specifically did that to try and sort of set up a standard for openness. But in the mid-'90s, um, the true genomics people in the community, guys like uh, Joe Ecker, uh, were getting fancy about really sequencing. And so... Uh, I know Joe and, and uh, several others, and Joanne Corey, I think, was involved at that time, convened a meeting uh, at Banbury to talk about, like, when are we really going to start sequencing? And that triggered um, the community to ask uh, NSF for a real sequencing funds. And at the same time, groups in Europe and Japan had already started sequencing. So the sequencing really got underway in about 95, really, really in 96, I guess. So we formed an organization called the AGI, the Arabidopsis Genome Initiative, that actually ultimately held together even slightly beyond the, the, the completion of the genome and was a very, very successful collaboration. And I think of it as, oh yeah, it's one of the great examples of scientific collegiality. 
I also talked to Caroline Dean, currently a project leader at the John Innes Center in Norwich, England. She studies the timing of flowering, which is an important agronomic trait of crop plants. In addition, Caroline and her co-workers developed recombinant inbred lines of Arvidopsis. I asked her how important these were for deciphering the Arvidopsis genome sequence and the identification of defective genes in mutants of Arvidopsis. Now, at the time, Elliot had driven the way in terms of generating RFLP maps and, and showing that map-based cloning could work. And Howard Goodman was also developing a Cosmid RFLP maps and a, an overlapping Cosmid library. And, but it was still quite difficult, the idea of map-based cloning. To complement those activities, I thought what we would do is to develop the recombinant inbred lines to integrate those two different maps, the genetic maps that had been developed, and to add further markers to that genetic map as the starting point for developing the physical map, which was again an, an international collaboration with many labs, Chris Summerville's lab, Howard's lab, Joe Ecker's lab, uh, based on yak clones, which is how we, we did it initially. And so the recombinant inbred lines were just the integrator, if you like, for all of that information to pull it all into one map and to order the, the markers so we could use those as the basis for ordering the YAC clones. They were very important, the recombinant inbred lines, because all labs around the world used them, added a lot of markers. And because they were all on the same population, that meant that the map grew very quickly and it was also everything you could compare all of the markers to each other because it was all on the same population. I asked her about her interest in flower induction and how she decided to use Arvidopsis as a model. Well, at the end of the 80s, you know, I was doing a postdoc in California trying to decide what my research group was going to be focused on. It's that big question that people have in their uh, research career. And I got very interested in the process of vernalization. And it was really through living in California and growing plants there and, and for example, uh, bulbs, you know, you'd have to put them in the fridge in California because it wasn't cold enough in the winter. And this started to really intrigue me. So I started to read up about plants and seasonal cues and got in, interested in vernalization. And there wasn't very much known about it molecularly at the time. But then I was fortunate enough to go to a seminar by Jose Martinez Zapata, who was a postdoc with Chris Somerville at the time. And he looked at Martin Cornice mutants, late flowering mutants, and some responded to vernalization and some didn't. And so that was, as soon as I heard that, I thought, wow, this is a great entry point into now being able to do a molecular genetic analysis of this process and really dissect what are the components involved. So that's what got me into Arabidopsis. Chris Somerville co-founded more than one biotech company and is engaged in solving some of society's most urgent problems, such as sustainable energy production. Therefore, I asked him to describe the product development process, starting with a fundamental discovery in Arvidopsis and ending with the application of the discovery in a crop plant. I co-founded Mendel with um, Mike Fromm, Brian Staskowitz, Jonathan Jones, Fred Osbell, and Elliot Meyerowitz back in the mid-90s. And our basic idea was, was that most traits of agronomic importance were likely to be multigenic and that in some cases these genes would be subject to coordinate control by a small number of transcription factors. In fact, Elliot had shown this really beautifully for flower development and there were also a couple other cases such as anthocyanin synthesis where a single gene would turn on a whole pathway. We cloned all the transcription factors and then tested their function by overexpressing or knocking them all out 
And this is not something we probably could have done in our lab, our academic labs, because we had to get a very large team of people together to do that. And But the companies, these little companies, are really perfectly suited for that. And it was really a fountainhead of discovery. We, we really discovered a lot of interesting things. And we'd gotten funded to do this mostly by Monsanto and another company called Seminist that no longer exists. And those companies really had a great insight into what was useful. So as all these discoveries were coming out of our pipeline, those, the, the scientists from Monsanto and Seminist would come and talk about what might be useful. And we, and so after, even though we did several thousand transcription factors, uh, at the end of the day, it all narrowed down to a couple of dozen that really did interesting things. And since we actually finished that, I think we finished all that, that phase by almost 10 years ago. And since then, Mendel has had up to 120 scientists just working on, on a couple of the ones that really have useful effects, trying to really figure out how they work. And Monsanto has been testing them in the field in real crop species for almost as long. And now we have you know, many years of data at many locations. These discoveries are now, I think, expected to come to the market in about 2012. So that would be 15 years after we started, and hundreds of millions of dollars, I can say, spent on the research. And um, the, the ones that will be coming out first that I think have already been discussed in the press are um, some genes that convert excellent drought tolerance and also several genes that actually just increase the yield of both soybeans and corn quite strongly. So I think what's interesting about it is, well, first of all, it was really enabled by by the model, you know, every figuring out how those genes really work and discovering them was all just spilled right out of the capabilities in the model. But the other interesting thing is how long it has taken, even though we never really had a problem. We also talked about the current frontiers of Aridopsis research. A good example is a new approach to development that Elliot calls computational morphodynamics. I asked him to explain this approach in simple terms and to provide his vision as a developmental biologist. The question I would like to answer as a developmental biologist is how a group of cells collaborate to create patterns. And in thinking about it, I always think about if I were the cell, what would I need to know to do what the cell is doing? To answer a question like that, the first thing you have to know is what all the cells are doing in a developing tissue or organ or part of a plant or animal. So the first part of computational morphodynamics, which has three parts, is live imaging and acquisition of large amounts of data at a subcellular resolution that encompass all the activities or as many of the activities of the cells as you can observe as they create patterns in a tissue. We use a lot of confocal microscopy and fluorescent reporters and fluorescent proteins as a way of doing this, but one can imagine other ways as well. Once the information is acquired, and that requires image processing, as done by computer scientists, to really get the information out of all the data collected, our next step is just what any scientist does, is make a hypothesis about what's going on. There's something special about the way we deal with a hypothesis, though, because we insist that our hypotheses be expressed mathematically. And the reason we insist on that is that anyone else can know exactly what is your hypothesis. And secondly, that once you have the equations, you have to establish parameters for all the equations. So you're saying exactly what is your hypothesis, 
not just that gene A feeds back on gene B positively and gene B feeds onto gene C negatively, but how positively, how negative. You have to say exactly what you think is going on. And then you can put the equations in a computer in an appropriate cellular substrate in the computer and solve them round after round and watch the behavior of the tissue and see if it matches what you've observed in the confocal microscope. If not, you have to modify the hypothesis. If so, changing parameters in the computer suggests to you experiments that you could do to test the model. Then you test it experimentally. If it survives the test, your model's still good. If not, you have to go back and change it. So an iterative process between live imaging leading to explicit hypotheses, leading to new experiments, leading back to revision of the explicit hypothesis should eventually lead us to highly detailed models of exactly what's going on in development. One positive feature of this is that you can model many different processes and add all the equations together into one gigantic model. Eventually, it should be a model of all of the developmental responses of an entire plant. I asked Elliot why Arbidopsis is particularly well-suited for this approach, which is based on in vivo imaging. First of all, the small size helps a lot with the imaging. Uh, I don't think you put a redwood tree on the stage of our microscope. We, we look at whole plants. We, we put them under the stage, and we look at the shoot apical meristem. The plants are growing in auger, the whole plant. We can also cut off pieces and watch them, but then you're not guaranteed that they're growing normally. Secondly, because of everything we know about the genetics and the genomics of Arabidopsis, we have an enormous variety of reporters, fluorescent reporters, that we can make based on known genome sequence and known candidate genes from mutagenesis. And the fact that other labs make them too means we get a lot in the mail so that we have the materials we need to see the processes in which we're interested and the mutations that we have enable us to look not only at wild type but at mutant material. For the shoot apical meristem, I should add that one enormous advantage is that the shoot apical meristem in Arabidopsis hangs out. You can just push a water-dipping lens objective from a microscope down through the leaves and pushes them out of the way and you're looking at the living, growing meristem. In a plant like a grass where the meristem is covered by multiple leaf sheets, you can't see it at all. So the fact that you can see it is one advantage. The great advantages are the enormous backlog of genomic information, available reporters, available mutations, and the ability rapidly to get more to enable us to manipulate the plant in a way that's really, uh, that, that really gives us the information that we need. I've mentioned three types of advantages there. There are the intrinsic advantages of the plant, like its size and the exposure of its meristem. There are the derived advantages of the plant, such as the genome sequence and the availability of mutations with a database, tear, and stock centers from which you can get the mutations. And those lead to the third type of advantage, the social advantage. We have stock centers, and everybody in the field shares all their materials and information. So there are three types of advantages, intrinsic, derived scientific advantages, and then the social advantages. The Rabinopsis people are nice, and they'll send you anything you ask for. Caroline reinforced this sentiment. One interesting conversation I had over the last six months was there's someone was looking at why the Arabidopsis community had been so successful. She was a social scientist who had looked at lots of different scientific communities, not just biologists, 
uh, biology communities and had noted that, gosh, you know, the Arabidopsis community seemed to be one that had interacted much more successfully than others. In the end, we decided it was sort of the importance of those sort of founder scientists sharing a lot of resources, information, um, and it just set the tone and the philosophy and then the multinational genome steering or, you know, the committee, which was important and, and coordinated activities, was just a very important early foundation stones that have set the whole community up and, and still successfully interacting. So I think it's, I, it was very nice actually sort of hearing that the Arthropsis community was really sort of standing out compared to other biology communities and, uh, and it was being recognized as such. To conclude this podcast, which accompanies the Plant Journal special issue on Arabidopsis, I let Elliot sum it all up. Now, I'd just like to emphasize the point that Arabidopsis is the most useful plant I know, and, uh, and uh, I think it's critical that we expand our efforts on it, because without doing that, we'll never learn what we need to know about crop plants.